0: Chapter 13 of Edward the First. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Chapter 13 The End of the Reign, 1305-1307. With Scotland subdued and apparently appeased, Edward was again able to turn his mind to English affairs. He was a man slow to forgive and tenacious in his policy. He had neither forgotten nor forgiven the humiliations inflicted upon him by the union of the baronial and clerical opposition in the years between 1297 and 1301. He still chafed at the restraints then imposed upon his prerogative and his pious fear of breaking the oath he had so unwillingly sworn only added to his restlessness and uneasiness. The baronial opposition was already broken up. Hereford died in 1298, and Norfolk had completely abased himself by a temporary surrender of his estates to the Crown, and by receiving them back, fettered with the obligations of a conditional estate that came under the provisions of the Statute Quia Torus. Edward was thus in a position to carry out a policy which he had devised to prevent a renewal of the baronial opposition. His greatest danger was from the higher aristocracy represented by the great earls. The earldom of the days of Edward stood in a very different position to the somewhat commonplace dignity which goes by the same name in the 19th century. The earldom was still the highest rank of the peerage. It still retained some traces of its early position as the official head of a county. It involved a great position both in the court and in the nation. The number of earls was so scanty that each individual earl was personally and territorially important. In the earls the people saw the natural leaders. Edward's plan seems to have been to prevent a renewal of the baronial opposition and to add to the strength of the crown by getting as many of the great fiefs as he could under his direct control. Circumstances favoured his design, and a series of lucky escheats and well-designed marriages much facilitated the process. In 1300, the death of Edward's cousin, Edmund of Alamein, threw the rich earldom of Cornwall into the king's hands. On the death of the Earl of Norfolk in 1306, his earldom was escheated to the crown for lack of heirs to his body. Contemporary writers put Edward's lucky acquisition of these two great earldoms side by side with his conquests of Wales and Scotland. The young Earl Humphrey of Hereford married in 1302 the king's daughter, Elizabeth the Welshwoman, the widowed Countess of Holland. Meanwhile, former efforts in the same direction were bearing fruit. Joan of Acre administered the Gloucester inheritance of Edward's youthful grandson. The young Thomas of Lancaster, Derby and Leicester was expecting the succession of Lincoln and Salisbury. Edward of Carnarvon now ruled over Wales and the earldom of Chester. Edward and his near kin thus enjoyed a remarkable concentration of the great earldoms in their hands. The policy had a temporary success and perhaps accounts in part for the cessation of the baronial opposition in the last years of Edward's reign. But the policy had its dangerous side and its permanent results were by no means favourable either to the dignity of the crown or to the prosperity of the nation. The chroniclers attribute the decadence that set in after Edward's death to the dying out of so many of the old earldoms. Still, Edward's policy was at least a thoroughly English policy, and if it failed, it failed largely because, by identifying the younger branches of the royal house with the ancient feudal dynasties, it also identified them with the hereditary jealousies and factions of the old lines of earls. It had the merit of making impossible a royal caste, cut off by the rigid laws of etiquette and pride of birth from the general mass of the nobility. It was both the strength and the weakness of Edward that while he was politically but the greatest official in the land, he was socially but the head of the English aristocracy. Though he firmly believed that his power was of God, he never aspired to be the semi divine ruler set by his birth and position upon a pedestal that kept him solitary and apart from the life of the country over which he ruled the baronial opposition being thus got rid of, the clerical opposition alone remained to be dealt with. Winchelsea was still unreconciled. But Winchelsea held a great position and could not easily be attacked. Since the Falkirk campaign, Bishop Beck of Durham had, to Edward's intense disgust, thrown up his diplomatic and military positions and, after a vain attempt at mediation, allied himself to Winchelsea. But Beck got mixed up in obscure struggles with his chapter, and on his setting out for Rome in 1302, without the king's permission, Edward took into his own hands the rich temporalities of the sea. On his return, Beck submitted himself to Edward, who restored him to his lands. But fresh difficulties soon drove Beck back to the papal court, where he obtained in 1305 the sounding title of Patriarch of Jerusalem. Edward complained that he had obtained from the Pope grants injurious to the rights of the crown, took away from him some of his best manners, and never left him in peace for the rest of his life. When Edward pursued Beck, with whom he had no personal quarrel, with such unremitting rancour, it was plain that he was only waiting his opportunity to inflict an even more signal vengeance on the hated archbishop. In 1305, the favour of Philip the Fair secured the papacy for Edward's Gascon subject, Bertrand de Goth, Archbishop of Bordeaux, who assumed the name of Clement V. As evidence of his subservience to the French king, Clement now transferred the seat of the papacy from Italy to France and began that fateful 70 years of Babylonian captivity which did so much to lower the Holy See, both in actual power and popular esteem. Clement showed almost as much deference to Edward as to Philip. His submissive attitude gave opportunity for Edward to work out a great plan of revenge. While it encouraged king and nation alike to enter into a course of anti-Roman legislation, there was England's revenge for Pope Boniface's slights upon her independence. Edward still fretted under his obligations to observe the charters. As soon as Clement had become Pope, he applied for and obtained a dispensation from his oath to observe the charters in their new and enlarged form. The complacent Pope at once gave the required absolution and Edward issued a new ordinance of the forest in which he repudiated those portions of the revised forest charter which had so long offended his sense of dignity. Further action he did not take, and this must be considered a sign of moderation, for Clement's bull was so wide in its wording that it would have empowered Edward, if he had had a mind to it, to repudiate the whole of the additions to the great charter wrung from him in 1297. This shows that Edward had no design of violating the essential elements of the English constitution, but it was at best a great falling away of the old king to revert to the worst precedents of his stormy youth. This declension from the doctrine of keep troth may tend to keep the king off the lofty pedestal on which his admirers have sometimes placed him. But nothing was more natural for a medieval king than to submit his conscience to his interests, and in no way did the papacy exercise a more demoralizing influence upon Europe than through the facility with which it gave men of easy or formal honesty a means of sheltering their weakness under the protecting aegis of the church. The king's vengeance was now turned on the able and accomplished primate, whose rigid regard for the interests of his cloth and persistent hostility to the crown were now to be atoned for by a signal fall. Winchelsea's relations with Edward had been further complicated by a fierce and unworthy quarrel with Edward's favourite minister, Bishop Walter Langdon. The archbishop had accused Langdon of simony, adultery, murder, and intercourse with the devil. But the minister had been triumphantly acquitted of these foul and monstrous charges and now pursued the primate with a deadly hatred. A long accusation was sent up to Avignon against Winchelsea, of which the most serious part was a charge of treason, based upon his conduct in the Parliament of Lincoln in 1301. Clement again showed the utmost willingness to oblige the king. Winchelsea was suspended and summoned to appear before the papal court. In a stormy interview, the Archbishop besought the king for leave to quit his kingdom. Permission to go, said Edward. Right willingly we give but permission to return thou shalt never have. We know thy craft, thy subtlety, thy treachery, and thy treason. The Pope will deal with thee as thou deservest. Favour at our hands thou must never expect. Merciless as thou been to others, mercy to thyself will we never show. Edward was as good as his word, and for the rest of his reign Winchelsea remained in poverty and exile but Edward quickly quarrelled with the complacent Pope on the question of the administration of the lapsed revenues of the See of Canterbury, and Edward was fully backed up by the rising anti-papal feeling in the nation. The spirit which animated the barons at Lincoln culminated in 1307 in the famous Statute of Carlisle, the first act of anti-Roman legislation in England. Nothing but Edward's death prevented us regular breach with the Pope. Never did Edward's affairs seemed more flourishing than in the early part of 1306. Scotland remained subdued. The French were friendly. The Pope was the King's creature. The Baron and the Commons were alike well disposed. The arch-enemy Winchelsea was in exile. Though old and stiff, Edward remained in good health. He had taken vigorous steps to grapple with the administrative disorder, which was almost chronic in the Middle Ages, and nothing had made the old King better liked among the peace-loving men than his putting down by his writs of treblastion, the groups of armed ruffians who worked all sorts of misdeeds. The only drop of bitterness in his cup of happiness was the unworthy conduct of his son and heir. Immense pains had been taken to instruct the young Edward in martial accomplishments and drill him in the principles and routine of business and statecraft. But within the tall, strong, handsome frame of the young prince was the heart of a coward and a trifler. He had no serious interests, wasted his time in gambling and rioting in low society, and cared for nothing but his horses, hounds, players, and boon companions. In 1305, the young Edward had incurred his father's ire by a wanton attack upon Bishop Langdon, and was with difficulty restored to favour by the good offices of his stepmother. The certainty that there was no guarantee that his policy should be continued after his death must have weighed heavily upon the aged king. Terrible news now came from Scotland. Robert Bruce, the grandson of the claimant Earl of Calick, since 1304 by his father's death, had for several years been amongst Edward's Scottish partisans. But he now withdrew himself from the court and took horse for Scotland, where on the 10th of February, 1306, he met John Comyn, the former regent in the Franciscan convent at Dumfries. The two men were old rivals, the representatives of houses long hostile to each other. A dispute broke out. Hot words passed. Swords were drawn and Comyn was slain. Bruce was now forced to become a fugitive, and in self-defence was compelled to identify himself with the party of Scottish independence, with which in recent years he had been secretly intriguing. He found that the spirit of Scottish nationality still burned as fiercely as ever. He soon manifested a skill, and daring, that chose him to have been a born leader of men. Before Lent was out, half-Scotland was again in revolt. On the 25th of March, Bruce was crowned King of the Scots at Scone, A few strong castles with their English garrisons and a few nobles jealous of Bruce's progress alone actively upheld the English cause. The ill tidings of the Scottish revolt were brought to Edward at Winchester, whither he had gone to keep his Lenten court. He burst into a terrible explosion of wrath and resolved to stamp out all resistance in the stubborn and intractable nation on which all clemency was thrown away. Troops were at once dispatched to the north and a great gathering of the younger nobles was summoned to Westminster Prepare for an expedition of crushing numbers and force. The king was now so infirm that he could not ride, and was taken from Winchester to London in a horse litter. On Whit Sunday he held a gorgeous pageant at Westminster. He solemnly dubbed his son Edward a knight. Three hundred young men of noble houses gathered together in the Abbey Church to receive the same honour from their future king. There was such a pressure round the high altar of the Abbey that two of the new knights were crushed to death by the throng. Then two swans, their necks encircled with chains of gold were brought in. Edward now vowed by God and the swans that he would at once set out to Scotland and avenge the wrongs done to Holy Church and the realm by the rebellious murderers of John Comyn. When Bruce was subdued, the king pledged himself that he would no more bear arms against Christian men, but would go to the Holy Land and die fighting against the infidel. The prince and the other new knights took the same vow and the musters were ordered to assemble early in July at Carlisle. Thither, the Prince of Wales was at once sent. Edward followed his son as quickly as his infirmities would allow. On Michaelmas Day, Edward reached the Austin Priory of Lanicost near Carlisle. Here he took up his quarters for more than half a year, as the state of his health and his business with the Pope combined to make it impossible for him to take the field in person. But the heavy hand of his generals was laid upon Scotland, and the new King Robert was soon reduced to such straits that he fled to the Western Isles for refuge, while the stern resolve of the old king to have done with clemency involved the unhappy Scots in worse desolation and destruction than ever. Many Scottish nobles were taken prisoners and at once put to death as traitors. The lands were confiscated and handed over to English earls in Edward's confidence. Bruce's own domains were overrun. Carrick was bestowed on Henry Percy. Allendale went to the young Earl of Hereford. Another son-in-law of the king had the great earldom of Athol. This time, Scotland was beheld by chains of iron in the merest and barest slavery. But even in his worst moods, Edward bade his soldiers spare the common folk, whose only crime was obedience to the orders of their natural lords. He sternly rebuked the Prince of Wales for his indulgence in an indiscriminate slaughter that distinguished neither leader from follower nor grown man from woman and child. Edward suffered much more from sickness during his stay at Lanicoste but he still found energy enough to move in March 1307 to Carlisle to meet the Parliament which he had summoned to assemble in the border city. With the return of summer, bad news again came to the seat of war. Bruce returned from his hiding place, and the goodwill of the mass of the population again allowed him to make headway against the strong armies of Edward. As soon as Parliament was over, the old king resolved to take the field in person. He offered up in the cathedral city the horse litter, which had conveyed him from the south and again mounted his charger and put himself at the head of the army that was pouring into Scotland. But his great spirit was no longer able to control his failing body. For two successive days he struggled on, but each day he could only manage to ride two miles, and on the third day he was forced to rest altogether. On the fourth day, Edward managed to reach Buron Sands, a village less than six miles from Carlisle. He was now attacked by dysentery and sank rapidly. As he lay dying... He sent his last words of counsel to his absent son. He urged him to persevere in the subjugation of Scotland and to avoid unearthly favourites. His last thoughts turned to the two great enterprises on which he bent his mind, the subjugation of Scotland and the recovery of the Holy Land. But even after his death he longed to share in those great works. He begged his son to carry his bones about with him in his Scottish campaigns so that even the dead Edward might still lead his warriors to victory against the hated enemy. He also requested that his heart should be sent to the Holy Land with a train of a hundred knights to fight for the recovery of the sepulchre of the Lord. He then prepared himself for death and, with a prayer for the divine mercy on his lips, quietly passed away on the 7th of July, 1307, at the age of 68. With the great king died his great work, and the tragedy of his end was made more pitiful by the wretched farce of the reign of Edward II. His dying wishes were set at naught. The Scots' campaign was given up. His body was sent with scanty reverence to an immediate burial place at Westminster, where it now reposes under a plain monument of grey marble, but little corresponding to his greatness as a king, and upon which has been inscribed "Edwardus Primus Scotorum Malus Hic Est Pactum server. But it was not only by reason of his son's unworthiness that Edward's most cherished plans were doomed to failure. He had attempted more than even his strong purpose could have successfully accomplished. But if an independent Scotland bore witness that Edward's greatest ambition was a failure, his work lived on in his realm of England, where after ages agreed to recognise in him one of the greatest and wisest of her rulers, and where the whole subsequent history of the land he loved so well bore daily witness to the strength and endurance of the great king's work. End of chapter 13 End of Edward I.